Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Hello and welcome to Jen Taylor Rerouting, where being rude is never acceptable, but sarcasm is welcome and swearing isn't always a bad option. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me on Jen Taylor Rerouting. My goal is that every guest becomes a friend and I feel truly blessed to know the people that I've interviewed. If you want to know more information about me from being a guest on this show to my virtual assistant services for podcasters, or perhaps you want to be a published author, I have coaching and ghostwriting services for that. You can find everything that you want to know on jentaylor.net. Remember to give a shout out, share, like, Give me some feedback on all of my interviews. I'm happy to join in on the conversation with you. Have a great day. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Karen Beach from funfeistyfab.com. Karen, how are you? I'm great. <laughs> That's awesome. And we both have dogs here, and uh, I'm drinking tea, and we're having lunch together. This is exactly like I like it. I'm finishing my lunch now but the dog's not going to get my last bite. I that's, swear he's not. That's important to point out. I'm going to talk about your website. It's funfeistyfab.com and you do coaching for people over 40. Mm -hmm. I'm going to quote you on this um, because I like what you say. Um, people, I think sometimes are confused by coaching or they want one, but they don't know if it's worth it. And you write in here, a coach isn't a consultant. A consultant is someone you hire to do a job for you. A coach isn't a trainer. A trainer is someone who teaches you a new skill. A coach isn't an advisor. An advisor tells you what you should do. And a coach isn't a therapist. A therapist has years of experience to help you deal with deep-seated issues. And I like that. I think that coaching is moving forward and therapy is going backwards. So I always exactly. kind of tell people, like, what happened before affects you now, but I'm not there to deal with those deep-seated issues. So you... Exactly. You have a really fun website. Talk to me a little bit about your coaching, consulting. I want to know how people can find you. Give me all the um, information. Fun Feisty Fab is my website for both my coaching and for my podcast, which you can also find on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere good uh, podcasts are found. But enough for that plug. I'm going to say that on my website, Fun Feisty Fab, You'll find a blog that normally references my upcoming shows. And I'm getting back into doing more coaching. I got my coaching certification almost 10 years ago. But I had a hard time at first because I didn't have a niche. And when you're trying to be everything to everybody, it doesn't work. So I put it on hold for a while, and when I started doing this podcast, which is my second podcast, because my first suffered uh, from the same thing, I was trying to be everything to all women. But what I found in researching the, the audience for the second podcast, that there are a lot of podcasters who are in their 40s, or actually people that listen to podcasts. They're in their 40s and 50s, and there didn't seem to be a podcast for 
successful professional women in their 40s about issues that plague women in their 40s. You know, not everything is for millennials, although millennials can watch my show because with any luck, you'll be 40 (laughs) and older. So I started doing Fun Five Speak Fab, focused on women in their 40s and older because my therapist, we'll talk about that later, um, told me that when you get to your 40s, you start to question where you are. And even if you're fine with where you are, you think about what comes next. You know, you might have raised your children or they're getting, you're getting ready to be an empty nester. You could have um, been at your career for 20 years. But now it's time to start that second act. And what does that look like? And what do you want to do? How do you get started? You know, I say the 40s are a time to take your information, your skills, your passion off the back burner and put them on the front burner. You know, because they were on the back burner as we climbed the corporate ladder, as we raised our kids and had our families. But now, we're ready to focus on ourselves. So my guests help women do that. They are women who have done that successfully. And they're just there to be an inspiration as well. So I'm all about information and in wait, information and entertainment. So I love that because I'll be 47 next month. And I think inadvertently a lot of women in that demographic are reinventing themselves without realizing they're reinventing themselves. Exactly. I'm going to throw something out at you. I had a conversation with a group of women over our forties recently. And I said, why are you reinventing yourself? When you go to college at 18, you have to pick what you're going to do. What are you going to be for the rest of your life? Right. But why does that have to end? Exactly. Reinvention. Why can't it just be continuation instead of reinvention? Sounds like you're having some, midlife crisis and you need to figure your life out and yeah for me it's just been like a steady con- it's just you it's evolve. a continuum it's a right. continuum right. and my thing with the continuum because i agree completely with that definition but as we continue the things that we have personally valued become more important exactly well we and figure ourselves out too right True. We figure ourselves out, and that's behind the name Fun, Feisty, Fabulous. Because as you get, when I was a little kid, I've been goofy all my life. Totally goofy. I did a karaoke version or a lip sync version of Total Eclipse of the Heart while I was at work yesterday. So (laughs) they know that I'm goofy. And when I was little, I thought... When I grow up, I'm going to be a serious adult. And serious adults are not goofy. But I found out that I'll probably be goofy until I die. I'll be like the goofy 80-year-old in the, in the home. I'll be like my grandfather. He had a crew. So it was always my grandfather Cook with um, Mr. Cox and Chicago. This was literally his crew. Cook, 
my grandfather, Mr. Cox and Chicago. And I'll have my own crew and there'll be a bunch of goofy old ladies. We'll go to the salon once a week. I forgot what you asked. I just went on a tangent. Oh, (laughs) okay. It was, so we still want to have fun. We still want to have fun. My friends and I still laugh. Other people our age laugh a lot. Um, So we want to be fun. I think as you get older, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jen, but you get your feisty when you get older. You stop really caring what every little person is going to think about every little thing you say and every little way your eyes respond to something, you get your feisty. I totally agree. I think you always have it. Well, I always, you know, I tell my kids, when my kids get older, you know, that first time that they swear in front of me, and I swear, I, I've been known to swear like a trucker. So when they swear for the first time, I'm like, oh, the, the, the fuck train has arrived. This is <laughs> like I am so and they're shocked because they never saw mom as the person that swears you know we have different facets of our personality that we share in different places because it's appropriate and at work at some jobs you can't swear you can't be super feisty or goofy and I think you're right as you get older you realize you can actually marry all of them Mm -hmm. and and yeah maybe you curb some in some situations because you're respectful and you're polite and but you you spill over a little bit more. See, I've never been married, and I never have had a child of my own, besides Jake the Wonder Dog and Marty before him. But I always thought if I had a child, one day he'd be driving in the car with my dad, and somebody would cut my dad off, and my kid would go, motherfuck! <laughs> and, and my dad would be like, what the heck just happened? And that's how he would be. What the heck just happened? And I was hoping that I'd be married so I can push that off on my husband. <laughs> damn, damn him <laughs> using that language in front of the child. But just don't ask the child because he'd be like, mom swears all the time. All right. Which yeah, is I cool. mean, we can't be all of our personality all of the time. But I think as we get older, we, we do, like, we just spill it out a little bit in different places, you know? And we find people and job opportunities where it, we kind of click better, or we start our own. Yes. Yes. And the job I am at now, I found that tribe. I found people where I can be completely goofy and where they'll be goofy with me. In the past, you know, I learned in my 30s, I need to let my freak flag fly because it ain't going nowhere. And I can only act upright and serious for so long before, you know, a fart joke happens (laughs) before I start singing. And my boss was like, you know what we should do for a team builder? We should go to karaoke and watch Karen sing. (laughs) Awesome. I'm like, can I wear one of the feather boas that I have tucked away in my closet? They're like, why do you have feather boas? I'm like, don't ask. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then the fabulous, because we're all fabulous in our own way. 
that what we've been through, what we've come through, what we've overcome, what we've accomplished, we're all fabulous in our own way. Agreed. And, you know, I don't know, do you interview on your podcast? Yes, I do. Okay. So that's another shout out for people, women over their forties, like myself, who want to be on your podcast, but I'll, I'm going to have you on later. We'll talk. Good. Good. <laughs> so, the thing is, is that every time I ask somebody to share their struggles and then their successes, people um, across the board think that their story is not good enough. Mm -hmm. You know, they're and every story is good enough. There is no bar. It's about your struggles and your trials and how you succeeded in triumph. What did you do with that? And how did you pay it forward or move yourself forward? And that's so sad to me that nobody thinks that their story has enough value when everyone's story has enough value. You know, right now I have a course on Teachable that I, lo I love New Year's Day. It's my favorite holiday out of all the holidays. I know there's Christmas fans. I get that. There's Thanksgiving fans. But I love the idea of a clean slate. And so I have a workshop called Golden Goals. It's on Teachable. You can find it on my website that really focuses on goal setting and i have things timed out so you spend three minutes here there's nice little funky music to go along with it but the first step is to look back at the past one to two years and really determine what went well and why did you get married what had to happen for that to happen did you get an awesome haircut and it could be something like an awesome haircut. You just took the risk and did it. You could have gotten your hair colored. You could have found your group of friends. You could have done a lot of things. But I give people more time for the good than I do for the bad because the bad is always on the tip of our tongues. The good takes a little while to dig out because so many times we don't want to give ourselves credit for the good you know we gloss over that but we beat ourselves up about the bad i agree i want to actually take that opportunity to dive into some of your story where were you uh born and raised i was born a middle-class black girl in cleveland ohio at the tail end of the 60s the end of the summer of love if that's 1968, I think it is. So I'm a little bit older than you. Um, and I had a really cool childhood. It was idyllic. And people are like, no one has an ideal childhood, but I really did until I was 13 and my mom's diabetes caught up with her. Um, because I was born in the 60s, I don't think there was the same focus on gestational diabetes and that. I think my mother probably had, according to my doctor, she had diabetes for a long time, but it wasn't diagnosed until two years after she had her nine-pound baby girl, which is a sign of gestational diabetes, high birth weight babies. So she had that diagnosis, but she never really accepted it. And what I mean by that is I have memories of her eating cake 
of her love of butter pecan ice cream, you know, and fiddle faddle. She loved fiddle faddle. I don't even know if they make fiddle faddle anymore, but it's sort of like Cracker Jacks, but not really. So she loved all that and never gave any of it up. So when she was 13, and when I was 13, it all started catching up with her. And she ended up within the space of two years, losing her sight, going on to dialysis twice a month. And she even um, tried to kill herself. And by fifth, by the time I was in 10th grade, I had just finished 10th grade, she passed at the age of 44. My adopted dad passed away from diabetes also. So anybody that's lived with someone, and he, and he took great care of himself, but, you know, lost one leg, then lost the other leg, then eyesight starts to go, oh, all, it was on dialysis. You know, anybody who's lived through watching someone, it is horrifying to watch. Yeah, and I just had to get my A1C done. And, you know, I, as I sit here, 90 pounds overweight and eating white chocolate mochas and Cokes every day, I was really scared. And I got it back and it was normal. And I'm like, that's great, but I'm wondering how much stress I'm putting on my body by doing all this. You know, it's normal now, but it's probably normal because it's taking everything within my body to be normal. Right. And that's a scary thing. Tell me about, now you didn't, you didn't really know anything about health issues until you were 13. Tell me what it was like. That's a, two years is a super short period of time to watch somebody that has always been there for you in your idyllic childhood to watch somebody go downhill. And so I watched over a much longer period of time. I can't imagine what that was like. And I, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about the suicide attempt also. Um, it seems like a short amount of time, but when you're that young and it's happening to you, it feels like forever. Um, the suicide attempt, is probably the reason I've had insomnia ever since. Because my mom had gone blind. We had just gotten my dog Soda Pop, who stayed in the kitchen. And there was, you know, the little child gate to keep him in the kitchen. And it was the middle of the night. I don't remember hearing anything, but I shot up in bed. And like a few seconds later, I heard the gate fall in the bath, I mean, in the kitchen. And my father ran downstairs and screamed, no, Betty, why did you do this? Why did you have to die? I remember hearing that. And I was in my bed and I couldn't move. Now, flash forward 30 years and I had my own suicide attempt. And my father came down and it was only then that I find out what really happened because I thought I was in bed and he came up to me telling me everything was going to be all right and his hands were covered in blood. What he remembers was I was on the stairs kind of scared to move and he came up to me with those hands. I definitely remember those hands. And she lived through it, but 
they ended up thinking my father had something to do with it and interrogating him because she had cut both wrists and her neck. And when I talked to my current doctor about it, she's like, no, that's all the medicine that they weren't looking at back then you know, because they weren't really concerned with interaction. She's like, because that's not how women kill themselves. So, you know, 30 years later, and I literally, when I was in the mental health ward, and I had to fill out all this paperwork, and they were like, is anybody else commit, try to commit suicide? And I said, no, because that's how far out of my mind that was. And then as I was sitting there, I was like, oh, damn, my mom tried to do this. And I, you know, caught up with the doctor and I said, I need to amend this. But that's how far back in my head it was. That's a very rare way, yeah, for someone to try. So she survived that, obviously. Mm -hmm. And what was the relationship with her like after that and with your dad? Our relationship survived that, you know, because in my mind, having seen how sick she was, I kind of understood why she wouldn't want to be here, why she wouldn't want to be blind and go from this vibrant, funny, independent woman to a woman that needed to help to go to the bathroom. You know, so I, I didn't blame her for that. My father, that's another story. I mean, <laughs> well, he was, he was there for my mother, but in some ways he was a very lousy husband. So let's, can we start talking about that? First of all, I want to finish up with your mom first. Actually, mm -hmm. so After the suicide attempts, I know it was all within two years, but how much longer was it before she died naturally? maybe about six months yeah maybe about six months and like I said I never blamed her for it in fact that right. I, I understood it what I took away from my mother's sickness and death is that I'm probably not gonna live to be older than her I'm probably not gonna make it past 44 Wow. And so I've rated every 401k I've ever had because I'm like, what's the point of saving for something that's not going to happen? You know, and now it's, it's really been a readjustment for me to think, fuck, I'll be 50 next year. You know, and I do need to start putting money aside and I do need to start thinking about that. Yeah. Wow. What a, I mean, when you're young, 44 seems forever. It seems like it's never going to happen, but we know on the other side of that, it goes by in a blink, but how awful to think that that's what you were limited to your whole life growing up. You know, and it's funny you mentioned that because I remember several conversations with my mom very clearly. I remember her telling me we were walking into the mall never have more children than you can afford 
mentally, financially, and emotionally to raise on your own. Because you, you can have a great marriage, but you never know what's going to happen. So you always have to be prepared. I remember that conversation. And I remember we were talking once, and I must have been about 14. And I was like, oh, I can't wait till I'm 16, because then I can drive. And once I can drive, I'll be going off to college soon after that. And then once I finish the college, I'll be grown up, and everything will be great. And my mom laughed. And she said, time moves so slowly for you right now. She said, just wait till you get a little older. She said, it's going to fly by. And of course, I was 14, so I was like, what could you possibly know about anything? Because, you know, that's what 14-year-old girls do. You know, that I learned. And the one thing I never learned to do is walk in heels. The makeup, the hair I figured out, walking in heels. I will wear funky flats till the day I leave this earth. (laughs) But I can't do the heel thing. That's all right. We all have different expertise, so it's no big deal. (laughs) Can rock the makeup. Yeah. But. (laughs) We all have to know our strengths and capitalize on them. Exactly. So when your mom passed away, um, I, you know, I sometimes think if it was six months, she, I mean, she knew, she knew the end was coming. And I, 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 yeah, she she definitely knew. She'd lost her sight. She had weakness. She was in and out of the hospital. I mean, she had to know she wasn't long for this world. Yeah. So after your mom died, you mentioned your dad not being a great husband, but I know that you guys struggled too. So let's dig in there. Well... My dad has always been a great dad. I've always been a daddy girl, and I still am to this day. But I recently found out that he started dating my stepmother, who can't stand me, before my mother died. You know, and I know it's the past, but it's still a very hard thing for me to deal with. Um... She was expecting to move into my mom's house with her three kids. And if I hadn't said, I will burn this bitch down first before I let another woman move into my mother's house. You guys want to be together? Both of you need to sell your homes and get a new one. But what you won't do is bring her three kids and me into a three-bedroom house. You know, that just didn't make sense. But They got married, she got pregnant, so I now have a 23-year-old sister. Jokingly told him, you just had your own grandchild. Little did I know when I said those words that I was speaking truth. Really? Yeah, because I don't have any kids. Right. I'm his only child, so he did just have his grandkid. So... How soon after your mom was gone were you aware that they were dating? Whether an affair happened or not. It was over a year later. So I had gone through 11th grade. I believe I met her in the 12th grade. So I think that was it. And why do you guys not get along? Why doesn't she like you? 
do you think? I don't, I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that I sort of look like my mom. I sound like my mom. And I'm pretty much the only remnant that shows that he had a life before. Okay. But that's never been a good relationship. Nope. And Not when I was in college and he would rush through me through my Christmas gifts and then leave me at home and go to be with her. Wow. What kind of woman lets that happen? Right. Now she, I mean, I'm sure she has another side and she could tell you all sorts of stories about me, but from where I'm standing, that's the way it is. So you lost your mom and probably kind of felt like you lost your dad and you were, well, you know, I was 15. Right. And he, he's a man. And you're telling me things like, just drink more milk and then you won't have cramps. And I'm like, what? No. I'm like calling my Aunt Bessie in tears going, please talk to your brother and tell him that I would rather go to school and take a test on a class I have no knowledge of than feel like I feel right now. You know, because sometimes, you know, when you're in your teenage years, those cramps get even worse. Right. And that's where I was. It was not a, a fun place to be. Yeah, it's not. I mean, there's no easy age to go through what you went through, but certainly that is a tough age to go through that. So you, you went to college. Mm-hmm. And dad married, had a baby. They got their own house, I'm assuming. No, she refused to sell her house after my dad sold his, so they just moved all into her house. And you moved to college at that point? I had just finished college, okay. and they, I, we still had our house at that time, so I kind of stayed there by myself. And then when she got pregnant, they moved into her house. Got know? it. So at least you were a little older and kind of on your own, doing your own thing. Yeah, luckily. Yeah. So how has the relationship gone with your dad since then? This is a quite, this is 25 years, right? This is 25 years, but I just found out about when their relationship started yeah. less than a year ago. And I actually had a conversation with him this weekend about it. I said, you know, I love you and that will not change. But what you need to know is what I know. I said, we don't need to talk about this multiple times, but I'm, I just want to tell you where I'm coming from. And that was it. So I spoke for five minutes. He gave a sermon for 30. That's kind of normal parenting. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't feel, I mean, I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel anything about it. I just need to move beyond it. So let's talk about that because your struggle was pretty tough and your age was not ideal. And I know earlier you mentioned a therapist. So what did you do? What helped get you through your mom's illness, her suicide attempt, her death, feeling estranged? I mean, there's a lot going on. What did you do to help get past that? The thing I did was remember the type of woman my mother wanted me to be. And that's who I determined 
that I was going to be because I was probably going to be that anyway. But, you know, I wasn't going to do drugs. I wasn't going to do alcohol. She wanted me to finish school. She wanted me to speak up for myself, which I didn't really do at the time. She wanted me to be driven, which I was. So I just had to, I decided the best way to honor my mother was to be that woman. That's amazing. So when did therapy start? Therapy didn't start. Uh, it happened off and on, but didn't start till I was in my 30s. Because what my dad did, uh, since he didn't want to be there, I did my own college applications. I cooked my own food. I washed my own clothes. And what my dad would do was kind of throw money at me. And I know that sounds like ideal for some people, but I developed a really bad compulsive spending habit, something I literally still grapple with today. But I went home for a wedding and I came back, my cable was off, my phone was off, because you know, that was back in the day where we actually had telephones. And there was a note on my door that my electricity was about to get cut off. And why? Because my stepbrother had a wedding. They called me on Tuesday and said, are you going to be here for the rehearsal dinner? And I said, no. Why would I be home for the rehearsal dinner? Oh, because you're supposed to read 1 Corinthians. Da, 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 da. I'm like, okay, nobody told me that. So now I need to get a dress. So I went out to the mall and I couldn't find a dress. I found five dresses. I found three pair of shoes. On the drive home, it was Labor Day weekend. Great weekend to get your summer stuff cheap. Went to a store, dropped about $400 on clearance items that I couldn't return. Went home, had my dad tell me, I don't like any of those dresses. Let's go buy a new dress on Saturday. So the people around me kind of encouraged that. So I had that problem, and that's what made me seek a therapist the first time. I went through my company's EAP program, and the guy told me if there were a 30-day inpatient program for shopping, you would be in it. So that was kind of like your addiction, your therapy. Yeah, it was initially about that, and then he suggested I go to Debtors Anonymous which I first scoffed at, but it was right around the corner from my job. So I went there and I saw people like me, people who were fuzzy about money, meaning you don't really know how much you have. You don't really know how much you owe. Um, people that juggled a bunch of bills, mostly unsuccessfully. Or, you know, if you thought you were getting a refund from your um, apartment complex, you wouldn't call about it because you were scared that you probably owed them something. So you would let stuff go. And so I went a couple times and I determined I was going to get this under control. 
And as I started to get it under control, I also started eating more. Oh, so you're transferring that, that addictive personality or... Not, and I gained a little bit of weight in my 30s, but it totally ballooned in my 40s, you know. And so I have another therapist that I got after my suicide attempt. And I went and talked to her on Tuesday. Then I had the bariatric clinic appointment on Wednesday. I'm like, wow, if this ain't a bunch of come to Jesus moments, I don't know what is. <laughs> so let's talk about that. We've gone, we've, we've discussed your mom and your dad and kind of rebuilding that relationship and how tough that is. But you struggled for years, you told me, um, with low self-esteem and periods of depression. But then you had all these great things happen too. So that's a, that's a great dichotomy. If you have low self-esteem and de depression, even though these good things are happening, did you feel like you didn't deserve them or it was a fluke or a one time? Where was, what was your brain telling you? As I gained weight, my brain kept telling me, oh my God, you're such a fat ass. How did you let this happen to yourself? Of course, no man wants to date you. Look at you. So I had that negative thing, but it's kind of weird because there's this dichotomy within me. Boy, I sound like I have a whole bunch of issues. Anyway. We all do. I've never had low self-esteem when it comes to my intelligence, when it comes to my creativity, when it comes to my ability on a job. In fact, on a job, I've been accused of being a little bit full of myself at times, you know, because I, I know what I'm capable of doing and that's never a problem. But when it comes to personal things like dating, like my weight, like all of that, you know, that's where I've always struggled with self-esteem. And I have since before my mom died. You know, I went to school with this many black people. And when I started in the first grade, there were this many black people. Right. And when, for sure. And when the other kind of four or five black guys came to my grade, they would call me black and ugly. You know, and that has an effect on you. I mean, it was before interracial dating, so white guys weren't dating me. Black guys weren't dating me. So from a very early age, I thought, well, there must be something wrong with me. Or, you know, I'm just unlucky in love because, you know, I'm not attractive. And that's always been in the back of my mind. And then it got worse as I gained weight. Well, nobody feels better about themselves when they gain weight. So any issue I think you have, it's just going to manifest itself in a much bigger way it's true if there's weight involved so tell me about the things real I mean I want to make a point of the things that were great because you said that's a great um, understanding or clarification that you you didn't have low self-esteem in all these areas so tell me about the script and the show okay so I was living in Maryland because I've lived in like six seven states You'd think I was running away from people that I owe money to, which might be true, but that's not why I moved to all these different places. 
So I was in Maryland. I had a boyfriend. It wasn't going anywhere. And I signed up. I used to teach classes at the local community college, you know, Excel classes, Word classes, whatever. And because I could do that, I could sign up for a free class. I could take whatever class I wanted for free. So I signed up for a screenwriting class because I've been a writer all my life. I've made up stories all my life. And it just seemed like a good fit. I love movies. So I signed up. I got the book we needed. I read it. I was all ready for class. I had an idea for a script. And the class got canceled because there were enough people that were interested. So I'm like, you know what? I've got this book. I've read it. You know, I know. Let me try to do this and sort of teach myself. So I wrote the screenplay, and I love the whole process of creating characters, giving life through them, through words. And I learned that you could write a character, and it could be like that person sitting right next to you because you can flesh them out and make them seem real, you know? And I really loved that. And I thought, well, hell's bells. I was just told I was probably not going to get promoted at my job. My boyfriend is pretty much not going to marry me. That's, and then I had to wonder, do I really want to marry him? The answer to that was no. So I moved to California. Load up my car, my dog, Jake's predecessor, Marty. My dad came out with me and I drove out to LA. And I joined an organization of black screenwriters and I was in a writing group through them. And I wrote a few more things. And then I got into a mentoring program with Film Independent. You might not be familiar with them, but if you've ever heard of the Independent Spirit Awards that come on right before the Oscar, they do that. And so I had a woman who was my mentor, and at our first meeting, I threw everything I'd written at her and was like, this is me. And she actually read it. And she liked a single scene I had written about two soldiers who are on their way to notify a family that their loved one had been killed in action. And I thought about that because my best friend's husband at the time was in Iraq. And I thought, well, what's the worst thing that could happen to her? The worst thing that could happen was her open the door and see two people standing in their military colors and, you know, and outfits. So I wrote that. She liked it. She was like, I'm looking for a short film to direct. You know, I think we can flesh this out to about 20 minutes. And we did. And she actually used to work for Danny Glover's production company. So she asked Danny Glover to be in it, and he was. And so was Elle Fanning before anybody knew who Elle Fanning was. And, you know, the. There's a movie called Soul Food. It used to be a show on, I think, Showtime. But in the movie, 
there was a grandmother that held the family together. And sometimes when you write, you think of certain actors and actresses. And I thought of her when I wrote the scene about the grandmother who is baking cookies for her granddaughter to send them overseas for her birthday. In my script, and if you ever see the movie, PNOK, Primary Next of Kin, that is the only scene that was not changed around. That's my words written word from word with the actress I had in mind saying my words. So tell me what the what the short film is again. Um, it's called P-N-O-K, and that stands for Primary Next of Kin. Because in this 20-minute short, you have a guy that's new to this whole process and doesn't really see it as important. And then you have a guy who's been overseas, who's lost men and friends, comrades and service. And he understands it. And they're together throughout the day. Um, and they make three notifications. So they tell the, the grandmother, they tell um, a little girl and her mother, and the little girl sees these two soldiers and thinks one of them is her dad. Oh, my gosh. And they turn around, and she has to realize it isn't her dad. She doesn't know why they're there, though, but when her mother opens the door, she knows exactly why they're there. And then he ends up going to Danny Glover's house, and Danny Glover and the older soldier used to work together. So he's like, oh, you're just here to see me and reminisce about old times. But the other guy was tying his shoe. So when he stands up, they see he sees both of them standing there and realizes immediately what's going on. So you write a short, you write a script that becomes a short, a short film, and then you were on a show. So tell me what show and what happened with that. <laughs> My mind, the nubile mind of Karen Beach, is stuck chock full with useless, useless trivia. Like if there's anything I'm remotely interested in, I remember it. Like, why do I know that half the people in the world can smell asparagus pee and the other half can't? I don't know why I know that. I heard it once. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I remember stuff. And so I always said, if I'm going to go on a game show, there need to be two considerations. One, I need to be the only guest. No, that Jeopardy trying to, you know buzz in and having someone beat you all the time. And I wanted multiple choice questions. So that, cause sometimes you can deduce the answer if you have multiple choice. So I was sitting home by this time I moved to Charlotte and where I am now. And I was in our apartment and I was working on a blog or something. And I had who wants to be a millionaire on in the background. And they said, they were coming to Charlotte to interview. So I immediately stopped what I was working on, went to the website, went to work the next day, told my boss, Tony, I'm auditioning for this show. She was like, that sounds great. I'll go with you. 
And I was like, okay, fine. But at the end of the day, something work-related came up. And for her, that was more important. For me, I don't care what's going on. This is a lifelong dream of mine to be on the show. I'm going to be there. So I got up super early and went there. And it was a very interesting experience because once I got there, I realized right away that the audition started once people from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire were there. There were other people with me who did not realize that and who were alternately bitchy or self-absorbed or complaining. And it's like, but the person that just passed out the questionnaire just walked by you. So do you think that's not going to come into play when they're deciding who can go on the show? So they gave us the test, and then they went, you know, the test like the SAT test where you're writing everything down in the little circles. And they went backstage to grade them, and they had like a Q&A with us where I found out once you get approved, you can be in the pool for up to three years. And, you know, that you have to fly yourself out there and get your own hotel. So by this time, it was maybe 15 minutes had passed, and they came out with the results. And I passed. So then you had to go back and talk to a producer for like a minute. So I turned on the funny, and I had just moved to Charlotte the year before. And I was driving my dad's 88 BMW. Mind you, it's 2006. And there's no air condition. And it's completely black. So no radio. But we did have the cool pimp phone. (laughs) We had the cool pimp phone in the car that wasn't hooked up. But they were like, well, what will you do if you win a million dollars? I said, I would get a new car because I'm tired of wanting to stick my head out the window like my dog just to get some air. And I'm tired of being angry at people whose windows are rolled up because they actually have air. And they were like, what's the first thing you say if you got, you know, in the hot seat with Meredith Vieira? I was like, well, maybe since I'm here, I can find a date now. Maybe there's somebody in America that's watching this right now that wants to date me. So a couple weeks later, they called me. And I was like, wow, that was fast. And my dad ended up coming with me. My aunt, my uncle invited himself. He came too. And, you know, it's so funny because my aunt, you know, she has the same birthday as my mom. So she kind of stepped in as a mother figure. And every time we went somewhere in New York, she would say, my niece is going to be on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Because she's very smart and she went to good schools. And I would be like, they, they don't care on the subway. <laughs> the the busboy at the restaurant could care less. But I went and it was a good experience. And you, how much did you win? I would have won $250,000 had me and my dad's radar been in sync 
because he knew the answer to the question. I had no clue. So I could either guess and be wrong and leave the 25,000 or I can just quit, stop where I am and win 100,000. So that's what I did. Awesome. And I got about half of that after Uncle Sam. Yeah, well, of course. And his cousin, North Carolina state taxes. Right. So then, I mean, those are some really cool things that you've done, you've accomplished, and they're in your skill set of confidence for sure. But things went downhill for you emotionally. So tell me about what happened. Now, we're recording this in November of 2017. So this was almost exactly five years ago in 2012, November 2012. Almost to the day. Okay. So tell me what happened five years ago. This has less to do with it, but it does have something to do with it. I had met what I thought was Mr. Right. You know, after all of these years, after all of kissing these toads, I was going to be, you know, with the guy I belonged with. Come to find out, he had pretty much lied to me about everything. He was already married. He already had a kid. And more so than being upset with him, I was upset because now I was in my 40s and this pretty much represented my last chance to have a child of my own. You know, and knowing that I was not going to be a mother of my own kids was pretty devastating. Because of where I came from and how I came up, I never wanted to be a single mom. Because remember, my childhood was pretty good before my mom died. And, you know, I came from a two-family home. And I wanted that for my child. But now, given the time it takes me to find a due to date, by the time this happens again, I don't know, my ovaries would have shut down or something. So... I was upset and I was grieving that. At the time, I also thought I was seeing a neurologist because they thought I had MS. So I'm looking at my stairs going upstairs in my house thinking there's going to be a day and I don't know how soon that I'm not going to be able to get up those stairs and there's nobody here to help. Then, and this is going to sound completely crazy. My therapist is like, yeah, that's kind of crazy. She didn't use the word crazy because she knows she's a therapist. And all. But I had a mouse in my house. A mouse, like a field mouse that just came in from, there was no infestation or anything. There was just this mouse. I'm scared to death of rodents and roaches. Anything on four legs that does not respond when I call it, I don't want it in my house. So I was not sleeping at all because I'm like, is this thing in my bedroom? Is it in my bathroom? Is it going to come after my dog? And I wasn't getting any sleep. So I called my doctor and he was like, go get these anxiety pills. And I was like, okay. So I got the anxiety pills. Oh, and the other big thing, I was working for a psycho woman 
like literally psycho went out of her way to bully me. I see her walk into work in the morning and literally break her neck not to look at me to say good morning. You know, so I was looking seriously for another job because I couldn't take working with her. So on the day that this happened, still not sleeping, even though the guy came before and said he got the mouse out, but I don't know if that's true. There could still be a mouse in my house. I don't know. Les is still a jerk. I can't have any kids. I might have MS. And now I get a phone call that says, despite great interviews, I didn't get the job I wanted. And all of a sudden, Jen, the world just crashed in on me. I couldn't pray. I couldn't stop rocking back and forth and saying, oh my God, it's always going to be this way. Nothing's ever going to change. It's always going to be like this. Nothing's not going to change. And I ran upstairs and I started writing. And at first I didn't realize what I was writing. Then I realized I was apologizing to my father for taking my and I came downstairs and I grabbed a handful of those anti-anxiety meds, got a big glass of wine and took them. I'm like, cause I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm just tired. I don't want to do this anymore. It was not a cry for help or anything. It was me literally trying to check out. In the midst of me having my meltdown, my friend Cindy called. She was like, you don't sound good. I'm coming down to see you. So after I took the pills, I called her back and put on the best voice I could and said, I'm okay. You don't have to come down here. But luckily she did. And I literally woke up in a, the emergency room with them trying to put an IV in my neck. I have no vein. So she had found the letter and they said, well, what had happened? And she was there and she said, Karen, please just tell them the truth. And I told them the truth, went to sleep. I came awake and it was really kind of surreal because there was a man sitting by my bed watching TV with me. He was making comments. I'd make comments. I got up to go to the bathroom. He came with me to the bathroom. And that's when I realized I was on suicide watch. You know, they took me to the, well, what me and the other people there called the nut hut. <laughs> I guess it's gallows humor. But they took me to um like this facility and it was interesting because they checked me and they did everything you see on tv they made me lift up my boobs they made me bend over and cough i was like seriously they actually do this and then i was there with other attempted suicides and drug addicts that was the only thing that was there and all these people were talking to me, asking me how I was doing. And I was like, how is it possible that these complete strangers care more about my life than I do? 
and I was there about a week. My, you know, Cindy, my friend, bless her heart, she had to call my dad and tell him about this. And so he drove for 10, 12 hours from Cleveland to be there. And every time visiting hours opened, he was there. And he was there till they closed. And there was one phone on the hall, and I was about the only person who got calls from friends who were checking on me and, and everything else. And that's when I realized, even if I never get married, even if I never have a child, I do have people that care about me. So you switched gears a little and realized everything in your life that, that you have. Yeah, because before this happened, I'd be like, I don't have a husband, I don't have kids, therefore I don't have a family. I don't have a husband, I don't have kids, therefore nobody really loves me. You know, I have messed up relationships with my father and my step family. I don't spend holidays with them. It's pretty much just me, and I'm like, and it's always going to be me. It's always going to be just me. Isn't this tiring? Aren't you tired of and finally, I said, yes, I am. And that's when I tried to kill myself. So I know you wrote to me that you were diagnosed with clinical depression and mm -hmm. medication was involved and therapy. So now it's been five years. So tell me, for people who have had a suicide attempt, my daughter included, um, and I lost my stepmom that way. So I, I, I feel this pain tremendously. And what you went through with your mom. So I'm sorry about that. You know what? It's it's tough. It's tough. Suicide is not an easy thing to talk about, and that's unfortunate because it's one of the things that we should be talking about. So in the last five years, tell me, you're still single. You haven't had a baby. You uh, have weight that you want to lose. Um, some some Go ahead. Money I need to put in the bank <laughs> keep going. Right. I mean, we all have, a lot of us have a lot of similar issues, estrangement from family, um, or we have different things, but we feel the same about them. So tell me what is helping you now, and when did you launch the Fun Feisty Fab website? Because you've had your coaching degree for 10 years, but... Tell me what's helped you. I want to end on a happy note where we can talk about what helps you get through all of that. My friends, the people that are there for me and love me and the people that can remind me and, and encourage me when I can't remind or encourage myself. Um, the other thing that helps me is with my podcast. And hopefully with speaking gigs, I'm going to speak to women about being diagnosed with a mental illness after you're not a teenager, after you're an adult. I mean, once I got diagnosed, I could remember periods of time when I would come home, I wouldn't open my mail, I wouldn't answer the phone. I would just sit there and watch TV. Sometimes I'd shower, sometimes I wouldn't. I would go up, I'd be fine at work, and then I would come home and just do nothing. You know, I lost a good friend during that time because I would not pick up the telephone. 
and she ended up moving and I wasn't playing voicemails, I would just delete them. So when things like that happen, I can say that's depression. A lot of the shopping I did when I was younger, every time I was upset, every time I was sad, every time I was disappointed, I would shop. Um, a lot of that was depression. And, you know, I think back, how different could my life have been if I would have gotten help earlier? But the truth is that I've gotten help now, and I'm coming now from a position that's more of strength. You know, it's like I don't feel like I'm about to fall apart anymore. And I was sitting there coloring because. God, they want you to color in that place. That's pretty much all there is to do. So I kept, I kept, I came out of there realizing two things. Three, not crazy about coloring, but <laughs> I am a writer. I mean, the only pen we could have, pencil we could have, was that small pencil that you use when you're filling out the lotto tickets. And I turned over, pay every piece of coloring paper I could get and I just wrote and I just wrote and I just wrote because being a writer is part of who I am. So I realized that and the other thing I realized is that maybe this happened to me because I'm in a position with my blog, with my radio show and hopefully like I said next year with some opportunities to speak to help women older women reclaim their lives just like i did you know you don't have to suffer you don't have to be in this negative place you can get help and things can get better and so that's what i learned that's why i took away from it. so you're feeling better now about and, and I'm guessing because you're you're still going to therapy. Oh yeah. So that was helpful. And you're feeling better about the the things that you're grateful about in your life and where mm -hmm. you're at, and not as stressed or upset, disappointed. I'm not sure what adjective you would use for yourself about the things like not having a child or not being married. I'm. I'm I'm still sort of disappointed about that. I'd like to keep hope alive that maybe I could have a husband. Mm -hmm. Maybe that could still work out for me. Um, as far as the kid, maybe there's a reason I didn't have a kid. I mean, because when I look at my life right now and what I want to do and where I want to be, I really don't have room for a kid. Because having a kid changes your whole life. And if you're going to be any kind of good parent, you have to put that kid first all the time. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I think that time frame for me has passed. You know, if I'm really being honest with myself about it, I don't think this is the right time for me. I think if that was going to happen, it should have happened. 10, 15 years ago, probably 15. So you're in a really good place right now. 
actually. Tell me about that. I'm in a good place, but I'm not in a perfect place. Um, I love the nine to five I work. Um, I love doing my podcast and my blog. Thought about writing a book. I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. And I want to do more speaking about mental health issues and women and men over 40. You get to a point where you think it's always going to be like this. You know, it's too late for help, and it never is. So, and to just show you how strong I am, how, how much I've changed for the better, I actually do have MS now. My doctor said, oh, you're okay. You don't have to worry about anything. And then last year, about a year ago, I went to the doctor because my right hand shakes sometimes. And they were like, oh, let's do an MRI. They didn't find anything about the tremor, but they found these white lesions on my brain. They referred me to another neurologist who did a boatload of tests, and they determined that I have MS, but I have primary progressive MS, which isn't the most common version. And luckily for me, they gave me an official diagnosis in June but the only medicine out there that treats the MS that I have got FDA approval in April. Wow. So, you know, I've taken that in stride. I don't have any real symptoms now. And I had to, it was surreal because I have to go for what's called an infusion. I didn't know that an infusion was the same way people get treated for chemo. Oh. And it's like an IV. I don't know what I thought it was, but I didn't think it was that. And so the first time I went to get the infusion, they're like, oh, you have to go to the oncology center. I'm like, why am I going to the oncology center? And even on my paperwork, it's listed as chemo. So that's kind of scary, but I've managed all of it very well. I haven't been upset about it. I've just dealt with it as it comes. There has been no panic attacks, me lying in the middle of the floor, falling apart. I haven't done any of that. So I think that is a good sign that I'm in the right place. So you've remained fun, feisty, and fabulous. Always. <laughs> I, I told my therapist, there have been years of my life that have been one long improv, but <laughs> this, <laughs> this isn't one of them. I'm really in a good place. You know, I'm, I'm trying not to beat myself up about my weight, money, any of those things that continue to bother me, but I'm moving ahead in a, in a nice direction. I appreciate so much you being willing to share your story, Karen. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun, feisty, and fabulous. Always. When, when, is it, when should it be anything but? Amen. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for listening in to Jen Taylor Rerouting. Like, share, and of course, comment. I welcome input with attitude. 
Get a copy of my book on Amazon, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, or check out my website, jentaylor.net. And if you still want more, sign up for one of my coaching packages.